Hello, I'm Dina Kraft. And I'm Sally Abed. Sally is a Palestinian activist in Israel. Dina is a Jewish-Israeli journalist. And this is Groundwork. A podcast about Palestinians and Jews refusing to accept the status quo and working together for change. Our show is powered by the New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. We're starting this podcast off with a mini-series. Groundwork, the Mixed Cities Edition. It's a three-part series. Each episode features a different mixed city, a city where Jews and Palestinians live together. Some of these mixed cities claim to be beacons of coexistence, but the recent violence showed a very different reality. The clashes which began last Friday have now taken the form of an ethnic conflict. Could Israel really face the specter of civil war? When war broke out between Israel and Gaza this past May, for the first time in the country's history, there was a major outburst of fighting between Jewish and Palestinian Israeli citizens. There were shootings in the streets, neighbors attacking one another, lynchings. Arab Israelis and hardline Jews have clashed openly. Motorists beaten unconscious, a pregnant woman sent to hospital, a synagogue torched. Leading the country to wonder, what does it really mean to live in a mixed city? What led to the inter-ethnic violence? And what's next? So in each episode of our mini-series, we'll have a conversation with activists in these cities who have been in the trenches for years, working for equality between Jewish and Palestinian Israelis. We'll reflect with them about what it's actually like to live and work there, what the recent violence felt like, and where things stand now. Today, we're talking about Jerusalem. It was the tensions in Jerusalem that ended up sparking the recent war and led to the violence in other mixed cities. Before we get into the interview, a quick note about the city. Unlike other mixed cities where Palestinian and Jewish neighborhoods flow into one another, and at least legally everyone has the same civil status, Jerusalem is different. The city has an invisible line running through it, a border known as the Green Line. For the most part, Jews live in West Jerusalem and Palestinians live in East Jerusalem. Most Palestinians in the city are not Israeli citizens, but instead have the status of residents, which can be revoked and does not give them the right, for example, to vote in national elections. A couple weeks ago, we got into the studio to speak with two Jerusalem activists, Nivin Sanduka and Suf Patishi. Nivin is a Palestinian from East Jerusalem and the executive director of Hukukuna, an organization supporting East Jerusalem Palestinians' civic and political rights. And Suf is a Jewish Israeli who lives in West Jerusalem. He works in the Knesset as a parliamentary advisor and is a longtime member of Standing Together, Israel's largest grassroots movement of Jewish and Palestinian Israelis. This is episode one, Jerusalem. So we want to really set the scene for Jerusalem. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the situation, can you describe what it's like? Do Jews and Arabs often interact? How do they interact and what that experience is for you, Nivin, as a Palestinian, and for you, Suf, as a Jewish-Israeli? Sure. Uh, thanks for your question. I think it's actually very important to recognize one thing, that East Jerusalem was annexed to Israel in 67. So under Israeli law, it's considered to be the united capital of Israel, but under international humanitarian law, it's actually occupied. And the Palestinians look at it as the capital for the future Palestinian state. Now, that said, 
it's true that you don't see walls within Jerusalem, actual concrete walls, but you can feel it. There's kind of um, a separation between the east and the west of Jerusalem. Once you cross a street, you are in a totally different setting. You are in a place where the level of services is less, uh, cleanliness is less, kids are playing in the streets because they don't have safe places to play with. Palestinians mostly speak Arabic, the Israeli Jews mostly speak Hebrew. Very few speak both languages. Um, now that said, makes it very hard to interact with each other and to get to know each other. Where do they interact? Cheap labor. Palestinians usually have a very high rate of uh, school dropout because uh, they live in a poverty, in 70% poverty in the city. So when they have a very high rate of school dropout, they actually prefer to go and work in West Jerusalem or in Israel in general. You rarely find people interacting with each other on a human level as friends or uh, visiting each other or knowing each other. So people may interact on the buses and on the streets or in the hospitals, but they're not actually they're not intersecting. Really talking. They're not really... They're coexisting. They're not I, living together. Yeah. Yeah. Coexisting, <laughs> but not living. Th- thank you. Yeah. That that's pu- beautifully puts it. Yeah. And Suf, what's your experience? In the moments that um, the situation started to be tense, we see a full separation and it's almost unbelievable to see how much the green line, although it's not um, stated in any place, is clear to everybody. No Israeli going east, no Palestinian going west. And then it's really extreme to see the fear on people's faces. Uh, when Palestinians need to go to the western city because a lot of, of the municipality services are in the western city and the bank and everything, you can see that people feel extremely worried. And in the rare cases that people from the western city coming to the eastern city, it's kind of the same. But the difference is, is that if I'm going to the eastern city, I'm choosing to do so. No one forced me. There is no need of me to go there. Um, none of my services are there. I can I can actually relate to that, like on a personal level as well. I don't wear a headscarf. I wear very modern clothes. I look like a Jewish Israeli. <laughs> you wouldn't recognize you me for a Palestinian. You don't look like what everyone or most people think a Palestinian, a Palestinian looks look like. like. The stereotype. <sighs> I don't fit the stereotype. But still, I felt terrified because I felt like extremists were actually looking at me able to recognize that this person is a Palestinian. Have you had moments where you're speaking in Arabic in West Jerusalem and you get funny looks or aggression? Well, to, to kind of avoid that, when I'm with my son, who's almost 11 years old, uh, we actually speak in English. Wow. Yeah, to avoid that. <laughs> right. By the way, there are like many um, research in, in social psychology that talks about how the oppressed doesn't really like to talk about what kind of racism they go through. Because when people ask me, um, you know, what kind of racism do you go through? Maybe I look, I get the looks, I get, you know, if, if I speak Arabic in, uh, in the bus, people will like move. Maybe, maybe. But that doesn't even happen that often. Again, Naveen said we do have that kind of privilege of, you know, not looking what they expect us to look like. Um, and it's a very interesting experience to be that kind of person who, once you speak, is where you actually come out of the closet as a Palestinian. Uh, and it's a very, very surreal experience. 
during the escalations, for example, and during the war and, and the aggression on Gaza, I did not speak Arabic. On, uh, I did not answer the phone. And it's not really because I think people are going to lynch me or I think people are going to attack me. It's just this very general, constant experience of just incitement towards me and like this hate towards me and this delegitimization and we are conditioned to minimize our existence and our presence as Palestinians everywhere and especially during these times it's like this tension on steroids uh, Suf I did hear that you are misidentified as, as, as a Palestinian in Jerusalem so what's your experience in Jerusalem it's a very interesting feeling because in the one end I don't want to use the fact that I am a Jew as a shield to help myself. But I know that like, if it's a matter of life and death, it's, if it's like a really horrible situation... And it can easily go there. Yeah, and they'll use it. Even one time I was arrested in Damascus Gate uh, by police and I was uh, accused that I attacked a policeman. And it happened because I was in a demonstration of Palestinian and a policeman attacked me. And I think it's a, it's a code by the police. Like, if you attack a person, you are charging him by attacking a policeman, and it's a code. You get to the, to the police station, and they pretty much understand the situation. Um, and then I was really afraid. I was arrested, put in the car, been beaten a bit, took to the police station of the office Jerusalem when they only deal with Palestinian. Um... And slowly, slowly, people in the police station start to question what I'm doing there. I'm sitting there, I'm talking Hebrew, I'm nice. And then, in the interrogation, the policeman told me, look, I know you was there by mistake and stuff, I guess they, like, mistaking you as a Palestinian in the demonstration, so, like, just give me something that will uh, justify the arrest, say that you, like... So, saw the police coming and you maybe raised your hand and maybe a policeman saw that you want to beat him but you actually want like to cover your face or something and I got out I can't breathe <laughs> this is exactly the level of, of racism and apartheid that, that it's, it's just suffocating it is, it is and it's horrible that I'm there and I know that I will be okay just because I'm a Jew it's like crazy. Just because you're Palestinian, then you are treated in a very bad way. You're immediately kind of like tagged. And, and like just what you mentioned, imagine if you were a Palestinian in that situation. Maybe you would have gotten like time in jail for attacking a policeman. And the thing is, it's not only that situation, right? Because since this situation, when I see police, I'm afraid. Um but I'm less afraid because I know that in the end of the day, the situation ended up good. There was no, like, um, father-like actions against me. But if I were the Palestinian and if I would have suffered from, like, another uh, interrogation and uh, an arrest for a couple of days or anything, I would just stop going to Damascus Gate. No chance I would go to demonstrations. Um, I would stop my life. And it's in every step. I wouldn't go to the Western city because because it's frightening. But see, this is the thing with Palestinians. You wouldn't stop your life. You would continue because there's a deep belief that we are here to stay. I mean, 
what more than than 40 years of, of, of oppression and discrimination and racism but still they're able to stand there and to fight not for I wouldn't say fighting for the liberation of Palestine but fighting for equal rights and fighting for their dignity and being you know recognized as equals as well In April, before the war between Israel and Gaza began, tensions were running high in Jerusalem. So when Israeli police put up barriers at the Damascus Gate, a central gathering place for Palestinians celebrating Ramadan, it was seen as an act of aggression. Ramadan, for us as Palestinians in general, also for me as a Muslim, um, it's a very special time. And especially we were also kind of opening up after a year of closure with COVID-19. Ramadan is the only time when you see the city coming alive, when you see, uh, especially at night, women, uh, children, men. We all go to Al-Aqsa, we stay there maybe until after midnight. You, can, you cannot even walk because there's still too many people over there. Um, and this time it, it was just out of nowhere, this decision to just close Damascus Gate, knowing that for Palestinians in, in, in the old city, Damascus Gate is the only place where they can actually have some sort of a normal life. They don't have backyards, they don't have parks, they don't have uh, gyms, they don't have, uh, you know, discotheques or whatever. So they're actually the only place where they can gather during such a a social time is Damascus Gate. So this decision to suddenly close it out of nowhere, it's kind of also telling the young Palestinians you don't have a place to go, Yani. So it kind of like created all this outrage. This led to clashes at the Damascus Gate between Palestinian protesters and the police. Amidst this tension, videos surfaced on TikTok of Palestinian youth attacking Jews. Not long afterward, ultra-nationalist Jewish extremists marched in the streets towards Damascus Gate, yelling death to Arabs and beating up Palestinians who got in their way. The following week, Palestinians threw rocks at Israeli police from Al-Aqsa Mosque, and police stormed the mosque compound. Some 300 Palestinians and 20 police officers were injured in the clashes. And while all this was happening, there were mass protests in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Several Palestinian families there face eviction from their homes. It's part of a larger drive by ultra-right-wing Jewish groups to displace or evict Palestinian families in East Jerusalem and replace them with members of their own community. I went a lot to the demonstration of the Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah. In those demonstrations, it's a war zone. It's a war zone, you're not safe in any place, not in the houses, not in the street, not in the demonstration, not far of the demonstration. It's crazy. Shock grenades are flying everywhere. I was there once and I saw the policemen shooting like shock grenades to areas that they can't even see. So there was a fence, they knew there are Palestinians in the other side of the fence, and they shot to the other side without even seeing where they're shooting. So nowhere is safe. You can say, okay, I'm standing in an area that nothing happened there, I'm alone here, I'm not with protesters, and you can't be safe. And, and I know personally people that are being uh, injured while they are far from the demonstration, and you feel, you feel like in a war zone. 
if I can just also add to that, actually also as a Palestinian seeing all these different um, things that are happening, first of all, I think it's really good that we have social media and we have modern technology because I think now Palestinians can actually capture what has been happening to them on videos and start sharing it as well. Uh, also, the using of, of social media and hashtags like Save Sheikh Jarrah, for example, it, it has really brought the issue um, back to the table. Um, I have seen one of those incidents that you have talked about because it was captured on video where a woman is just like standing at her door and then a police shoots her in her back. She's doing nothing. She's just at She's her house. 16 years old. 16 years old. She's shot in the back by a policeman. And like... That's it, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm not sure even what happened to her. I she's saw her still not rehabilitated. She still cannot walk. She's um, in, in, uh, in a process for and, rehabilitation. And this is, this is what is happening. Here we're talking about civilians, unarmed civilians. And even according to Nir Hassan, it's a report that was published in the arts. It's, it says clearly that all the demonstrations that happened in Jerusalem over the past month or so were nonviolent demonstrations, which were uh, encountered by extreme violence by the Israeli police. And um, this is just one example of what was happening. But but then, as a Palestinian, I never felt safe whenever there were police in the city in general. Not even talking about what was happening over the past uh, month or so. Even last year, when the autistic uh, man, uh, Yad al-Hallaq, was shot and killed by the Israeli police, although clearly he was labeled as being autistic, and clearly he was running away from them, you know, with, with his teachers shouting back at them. And still they shot him dead and then claimed that there were no cameras or whatever. But this is the injustice that as a Palestinian we have to deal with on a daily basis. And it's really, it's, it's not safe. Whether you are in your house or whether you are in, in the street or whether you are in the market, it's never really safe. It's, it's actually, this is what my son also tells me, even when I'm driving, and I drive in a very legal way, trust me. <laughs> and and then my son, when he sees a car, the police car, he's like, slow down, don't move, there's a police. And I'm like, mom, I'm just like driving, what's wrong? He said, no, they're going to shoot you. This is my 11-year-old whose mom is a peace activist. I'm trying my best to teach him that an alternative is possible. But still, it's so difficult to penetrate when he lives in such a reality. The reality is even much stronger than trying to give the future generation hope. It breaks my heart. I would say, like, share with you a personal experience that actually happened with my brother. And that doesn't even, he didn't even need to leave his house. In the middle of the events um, in the town of Shafat, suddenly you see Israeli extremists coming into the neighborhoods with, with rifles and guns, and they start shooting randomly in my brother's neighborhood. <laughs> and actually two or three Palestinians were wounded by, by these. The police arrives 45 minutes later. They take extremists to jail, only to release them after three days. And then instead of the police, you know, calming the people down, they actually start shooting at the Palestinians <laughs> at their houses. Actually, my brother has captured a video where he's standing right in front of his house and then the police shoots at him. And he kind of like my brother freaks out. <laughs> and it's all captured on, a, on, on his mobile. And I'm just like thinking, this is my brother peacefully just standing in front of his house. He has three kids. The oldest is, is barely six years old. What would have happened to something went wrong. 
And and this is like he didn't even need to go to West Jerusalem. This is what Palestinians on the eastern side have been witnessing ever since there has been this escalation happening since Ramadan. It's it's really scary. <laughs> and what did your days look like? Generally, everybody was feeling the same. Most of us, like, we, we kind of just, you know, didn't know what to do. And it took us a while to understand that this is the time we needed to step up. So uh, we started doing more advocacy around it, um, especially calling for protective presence amongst the Palestinians. Uh, as I mentioned, mo- the demonstrations were mostly peaceful, but which were met by police violence. So we actually needed to be asking for protective presence for civilians from the brutality of the Israeli police. Um, and um, as women as well, we put out a call for different parties to not only protective presence, but also to start negotiations as soon as possible and to make sure that women are also present in those negotiations because it gives like a different angle to things. But at least, I know it's not a lot, but at least we tried to do something about it. And um, So when you say protective presence, you mean what? Like bringing women in as sort of... No, no not only women. I mean, um, I spoke to a couple of, of organizations about it. So apparently there is an Israeli uh, political party leftist that trains its own members to be in those kind of demonstrations so that when Palestinians are demonstrating, they're there in a certain way to physically protect the Palestinians from the Israeli police. Because they wouldn't shoot uh, at Jewish Yeah, Israel. they wouldn't okay. shoot at Israelis. So so that, that kind of thing. As a peace activist, I think I went through a phase of maybe not depression, but very close to depression. Because from one hand, I'm unable to protect my own son. And from the other hand, it's like, this is your career to build bridges between people. And it's it's like, it's a system far stronger that we cannot fight anymore. I mean, you feel that level of hopelessness. Like now when we go to school, he, he asks me, like, what is that smell, you know, with a skunk? Uh, the skunk spray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because right. like Beit Hanina smells now so beautiful. <laughs> so the skunk spray, just so people know, is uh, an Israeli invention to help disperse crowds with the spraying of this horrific putrid smell. And it sticks to the ground and it sticks to the sidewalk. It clings in the air. It's really takes a long time to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. So my son just asks, like, what is this? And I'm like, I don't know what to tell him anymore, you know? It's like, ignore the question. It's not happening. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it, it's been really, really difficult for mothers to, and fathers as well. Like like this sense of, of, of helplessness to protect your own kids, it's, it's just an awful feeling. What do you gain from doing this partnership work? And what do you give up in order to do it? I think it's the only way. I think the only way to end occupation, to bring your peace, to bring your equality, is doing it together. In the end of the day, the peoples that live in this area are the peoples that are going to bring the change. No one else can do it, only them and only us. And if we want to do it together, it just not going to work. I I don't see it as a choice or a better way. I see it as the only way. If we want to work together toward changing the situation, it won't be changed. First of all, I agree with you that this is the only way forward, um, but it adds another layer of challenges. 
um, explaining it to Palestinians, what you do and why you're doing it and why you're talking to Israelis and why it's important to find not only like-minded Israelis, but also those who don't even consider you as a human. You also need to engage with them. You also need to talk to them. Um, it's it's challenging to explain this to to my family, to my friends. Uh, we have a very uh, lovely term that we use, which is normalization. You're normalizing. I'm a normalizer. <laughs> And what do you say which, to that? <laughs> First of all, t- tell people what, what that means. Normalization means that you go on uh, business as usual without talking about occupation. Like occupation remains as it is. The apartheid, the racism, everything remains as it is. And and you make uh, different relationships with, with the Israelis and, and khalas. You eat hummus and falafel together, pretend life is good, but it's not good. So this is kind of like making the abnormal normal. So it's kind of like in a simple way, this is normalization. So with talking to Israelis, most of the people think that what we do is that we go and eat hummus and falafel together. But what people don't know is that as peace activists, we are the only ones right now who actually engage and talk to Israelis about what it means to be occupied, about what it means to be living in a place like East Jerusalem and in Gaza and the West Bank, even like being a Palestinian within Israeli citizenship. I feel that we are the only advocates for what is happening right now. So we always need to um, explain that to them and convince them as well. So we have like, you know, two crowds to talk to. On one hand, it's the Israelis and the other, it's it's also the Palestinians. And unfortunately, right now in Palestine, generally, um, some people are even considering us as traitors. But... Uh, Yeah, this is this is the only way forward. We, we cannot just say we're not going to talk to you and give us our rights. We, we need to find that way to talk to each other. I agree with you. I don't think the Palestinians that see uh, what we do, you know, the Arab-Jewish partnership as normalizing, I don't think that they uh, they're not advocating. I actually don't see a contradiction between a Palestinian resistance, you know, liberation movement within Israel and outside and how that could coexist with me being a partner within the Arab Jewish partnership. Sometimes I do feel like, especially in these times, like I want to just put the hatta, the kufiyya on and go with like the Palestinian flag and be like, you know, like Palestine, like liberate me. And and that's very hard to do within Arab Jewish partnership. And that's very hard to do. Um, And that's okay. And I think an Arab-Jewish partnership that acknowledges our need um, to be angry and to be frustrated and to, to want, um, you know, something that is beyond uh, uh, equality and social justice and really a liberation of narrative, mm-hmm. uh, physical and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, theoretical liberation of, of our story. I think that's where we need to go. And that's exactly where this partnership does not normalize the occupation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I want to say maybe in the perspective of uh, the Jewish partner, Um, I really understand Palestinians that don't want to work with Israelis. I understand it because they have very good reason to be disappointed by us. First of all, we're occupying them. And you can't expect a nation of people that are occupied to be so thankful that you want to work with them. Of course, of course, there is like a lot of anger on the Israeli side and can... I can really get it. Um, 
And I really understand that they don't have trust in us sometimes because even us, the left wing in Israel, was failing the Palestinian people a lot of time. And we did things wrong and we did it without uh, conscious or with conscious, but we failed the Palestinian people a lot of time. So I see... I see our, um, it's our duty to give uh, our Palestinians fellows reason to trust us, to be there, to be there in demonstrations that are not in our symbols, to be there to protect, to be there to support, to be there and to try to gain this trust because it's very not obvious that Palestinians will trust Jewish left wing to work with them. It's you need to be a very generous person to trust us as Jews in Israel. And we have a really big duty to be worth this trust. What now? What now and where do we go from here? I think it's important to look at what happened and why it happened. Even today, I talk to some of my Israeli Jewish colleagues and and they say, well, yeah, these demonstrations happened because Hamas asked for these demonstrations. And I look at them and say, no, if you think it's because of Hamas, then you learned nothing. I think these demonstrations, we should go back to the basic things that were happening, the racism that's happening, the apartheid, the uh, the discrimination in rights, the, the, the displacements, the home demolitions, occupation. If an average Israeli citizen is able to understand why it happened, that will bring us a little bit closer towards a just solution or towards equal rights, let us say. I think that our goal right now is to get more Jews and Arabs together in a joint struggle, to organize us, to put us in a group and to fight together um, on the things that matter for us whether it is equality uh, and justice in East Jerusalem, whether it is social justice, our fight is to organize as many people as possible um, to fight for our shared needs and rights. I mean, the good thing about these demonstrations, and as you said, the unification of the whole Palestinian issue, is that it brought these issues on the table. And I think we have an opportunity to start talking about them again. Especially with regards to Jerusalem, it's not going to be the same way it was earlier. Like the status quo is definitely not coming to come back again. How can we make sure that um, whatever happened um, is not forgotten and it's actually we're building on it to gain um, more, more rights? There's no way back. That's it. We will never actually experience an equal and just society within Israel without ending the occupation. Like using that new term instead of coexistence, it's co-resistance. We're co-resisting together because nobody is free until everybody is free. Groundwork is created and produced by me, Dina Kraft, and Yoshi Fields. The episode was edited by Yoshi Fields. If you found what you just heard meaningful, If you think these conversations are important, we need your help in spreading the word. We depend on you to make these stories. So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. Shukran al-Mutaba. Todah shig shaftim. The show is powered by the New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. 
New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society, with over $300 million from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them at their websites, nif.org and allmap.org. And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. This episode was scored by Joel Shupak. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual bi-national hip-hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The activists you heard from in this episode were Naveen Sanduka and Suf Patishi. This episode was recorded by Ben Wallach, editing help by Elisheva Goldberg and Hannah Borg. Make sure to subscribe, and thanks for listening.